Welcome to the life of Jesus, lesson 34. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off in chapter 5 and page 15. Uh, we looked at John chapter 1 verse 14, and that incredible verse, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John MacArthur writes, this reality is surely the most profound ever because it indicates that the infinite became finite. The eternal was conformed to time. The invisible became visible, and the supernatural one reduced himself to the natural. It's pretty good, isn't it? Can I read that again? The infinite became finite. Amen. He is God. You know, omnipresent, everywhere, all the time. Amen. Alright. And the eternal was conformed to time. He is an eternal being. In the beginning was a word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. Amen. And he was in the beginning with God. The invisible became visible. So we could actually see him. Amen. And the supernatural one reduced himself to the natural. Ray Steadman described the problem well when he wrote, If we find it difficult, how much more did his own disciples? They of all people would be least likely to believe that he was God. For they lived with him and saw his humanity as one of us ever has or ever will. They must have been confronted again and again with a question that puzzled and troubled them. Who is this man? I have often pictured them sleeping out under the stars with our Lord on a summer night by the Sea of Galilee. I can imagine Peter or John or one of the others walking in the night, rising up on an elbow, and as he looked at the Lord Jesus sleeping beside him, saying to himself, Is it true? Can this man be the eternal God? In short, as the Full Life Study Bible puts it, Christ, the eternal God, became a human being. Humanity and deity were united together in Him. What's more, this verse, verse 14, actually foretells what the Apostle John is going to reveal to us throughout his Gospel. Things which he had seen, heard, and experienced firsthand. Or as he put it in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. See, he said, this isn't some fable, this isn't something we heard about. This is something we saw for ourselves. It is something our hands have held. Amen? Hallelujah. Okay. As to the statement, we beheld His glory. Remember in Matthew chapter 17 verse 1, John was one of the three disciples that Jesus took up with Him onto a mountain. And there John literally saw Jesus transfigured. Remember we saw that? Before Him with verse 2 saying that His face shone like the sun and His clothes became as white as light. So it was then that it became clear to John that Jesus was surely the only begotten of the Father. And surprisingly, instead of wrath and judgment, he found that God was full of grace and truth. Hallelujah. Isn't that beautiful? You know, we, we can't take for granted what is being said. When they said that he was full of grace and truth, John saw Jesus when the woman with adultery was brought before him. He was there to see so many things. And he said there were so many things he didn't write down. What, what a difficult task that would have been. 
to have all of this and then from that just pull out and drop it down to a gospel worth. My goodness. Can you imagine if the miniseries was around back then? It'd be going till now. It'd be still going. <laughs> the life of Jesus. You think my series is long. Anyway. <laughs> he said there was so much, they couldn't cover it all. Just wouldn't be able to. Hallelujah. Which then begs the question, what didn't he write? Anyway. And <laughs> we'll find out. All right. But, you know, something else to think about. It was, it was John that was actually taken up into heaven as well. Wrote the book of Revelation. And things that he's, God had told him, don't write. These things they can't know yet. It's incredible. He knew. He knew. But he couldn't tell us. All right. And John witnessed this grace and truth firsthand in the love and respect that Jesus Christ had for all people, regardless of their gender, past or background, not only in the messages he preached to them, filled with unmerited favor for the guilty, but also in the miracles he performed without prejudice or discrimination, with the gospel saying over and over again, and he healed them all. Amen? Isn't that beautiful? He didn't, you know, if he needed to correct somebody, he would correct them, but he healed them. He didn't say, get away from me, you dirty sinner. I know what you've been up to, and I know why you have that disease. <laughs> Do you understand? Don't we just love to judge, and I don't mean we here, but mankind, you know. Jesus, full of grace full of truth. The Apostle John then goes on to conclude his introduction in John chapter 1 verses 15 through 18 by saying John, the Baptist that is, bore witness of him, emphasizing that Jesus was the Messiah, and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, or was born after me, and whose ministry began after mine, is preferred before me, or is more important than I am. For he was before me, or literally, he existed long before I did. Once again, substantiating John 1.1, right? In the beginning, all right, was the word. And of his fullness, I'm in verse 16, or because of his fullness, his fullness being the source, we have all received. And grace for grace, or grace upon grace, or one gracious blessing after another. Now, there's a lot here, so I have to put it all in. Okay, MacArthur says that this phrase emphasizes the superabundance of grace that has been displayed by God toward mankind. And the Spirit-filled Bible says that this is God meeting us at our point of need in the person of Jesus Christ, including His power and provision. That's grace for grace. Amen? For the law, which was legalistic and demanding, was given through Moses... All right, telling them what was right, but not giving them the power to do it. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And this verse finally reveals who the word in John 1.1 was. And why he goes on to say in verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is, present tense, in the bosom or the heart of the Father, He has declared Him. Amen? It's a mouthful there. Do I need to go over that? You guys know? Are we all good? Okay. Alright. Let me just share some things then from here. I want you to notice a contrast between the law and what Jesus Christ brought. 
was grace and truth. All right, it's it's something that's very interesting when it says in verse 17, "For the law was given through Moses." Now, a lot of people say that for us to live a life that is pleasing to God, we have to live under the law. But I want you to notice what this verse says: the law came demanding things, but Jesus Christ came with what two things? Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Can I just say something to you? If you live by the law, then you are going to be judged by it. Do you understand? Because whenever you start telling people, oh, you have to do this, and everybody will then look to you and see if you're doing everything right. Because if you demand people to do everything right by the law, then they will demand that of you. But if you show grace toward people, then when you mess up, and you'll mess up, I don't care how great you think you are. <laughs> okay? I'll just tell you right now, sweetheart, you will mess up. You will mess up. Then the grace that you showed to them, they will show back to you. Amen. See, let me just share on another level with you just for a minute. One of the key things, you know, as... As we move forward in this church, and we're going to be looking for you guys to step into some kind of leadership in time, it'll happen automatically, all right? Because people will just look to the people that have been here the longest and expect you to know stuff. They'll just expect it, okay? I want you to not feel under pressure to be perfect. You let people know straight away that this is a grace ministry. This is not a compromising ministry. This is a grace ministry. Alright? And in other words, and you know, they will demand perfection from you. I'm just telling you, alright? They will demand that. But you keep showing them grace. Even in their demands, you keep showing them grace. And no matter how high they try to put you, you let them know that the only person that belongs in their place is Jesus Christ. Nobody else. Not you, not them. And not them trying to put you there. Do you hear me? Because otherwise it will come crashing down. And people just can't, they can't manage that. And you need to teach them right up front, hey man, we're all in this journey together. Amen, no matter how much we know, every day still is a challenge. Every day there's opportunity to do the right thing or not do the right thing. Every day there's an opportunity to miss, miss God, to mess up, and to do something stupid. Which then we're going to need 1 John 1, 9 for. And thank God for 1 John 1, 9. Amen? We need to learn to walk in this grace and this truth. And if people are looking for law, they need to go somewhere else. This is not where it is. Do you understand? Now, we're, you know what's interesting is that <clears throat> the person that knew the most judged the least. Doesn't that tell you something? I really want you to think about that. Which means, and notice the people that knew the least judged the most. All the religious leaders thought they knew everything they judged the most and at the end of the day knew the least. And Jesus in fact said, you are of a father devil. You are so stupid, you don't even realize that you are going to hell. And yet you stand there and judge everything. And he was God. And boy, I tell you, he could have just leveled 
people for their sin. And the only thing that he ever came against was hypocrisy. He was the only one. In fact, this is the reason why they got mad with him. And we'll look at all these instances. It's all coming, okay? When, when he, he, the crowd was getting a bit gnarly and, you know, he says, So that you know that the Son of Man, <laughs> okay, has the power to forgive. He says to the guy that's in the bed, he says, Get up, take up a bed and go home. Because everybody, it's easy to say, Oh, I forgive you, son. <laughs> yeah, right. Because they said, Only God can forgive. He goes, Watch this. <laughs> you, know? you think only God? Okay. Watch. See something that only God can do. He's going to stick that in your pipe and smoke it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and that's why they got so mad with him. And you know, isn't it so interesting? They constantly pushed him to judge, and he constantly replied with grace. And they, oh, they accused him of being with the wrong crowd, hanging around the wrong people. It was just judgmental constantly. And he would turn around and constantly judge those who are being judges. And everybody that was, had done the worst sin, that asked for forgiveness, he forgave without question. Isn't that amazing? I think there's so much to be learned from that. That's the reason why we're, we're studying the life of Jesus. We want to become like Him? Let's learn what He did. Let's see what He didn't do. Let's <laughs> not do that stuff. And let's, do, and let's learn what He did and become that. Amen? Alright, let's move on. Okay. So, I can't wait to get further into all of this. But there's so much here. I, I tried to rush through this. This is my rushed version. <laughs> Sorry. John MacArthur says that the phrase he, that is Jesus, has declared him the Father, literally means that all that Jesus is and does interprets and explains who God is and what he does. Can I say that again? Is that in there in your book? Oh, thank God. All right. <laughs> so, I'm so sorry I missed the other one out. I just, yeah. So again, John MacArthur says that he, that is Jesus, declared him, that's the Father. When, he's, when he did that, that phrase, when he says he has declared him, means that all that Jesus is and does, interprets and explains. Interprets and explains who God is and what he does. Okay? McDonald adds, when men saw Jesus, they saw God. They heard God speak. They felt God's love and tenderness. God's thoughts and attitudes toward mankind have been fully declared by Christ. Amen? Alright, in fact, Leon Morris says that, I'll talk about this in a minute, says that the verb declared is used of setting forth or telling a narrative. I love this, listen to this. It indicates that Jesus has now given us a full account of the Father. Remember? A narrative, okay? This does not mean that there is nothing more to be, declared, to be learned of Him. However, we may have confidence that God is as Christ revealed Him. Amen? So we know, I mean, there's a lot more to God, but you know what? We know enough to know what He's like. Amen.
All right, and following this, John MacArthur says that the remainder of the gospel develops the themes of the prologue as to how the eternal word of God, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, became flesh and ministered among men, so that all who believed in him would be saved. All right, so having established his heavenly origins, when we get to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew aims to establish his earthly origin, specifically bloodline and genealogy, to further prove that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Messiah they had all been waiting for. So John does one thing, and then Matthew and, and the other writers are going to do something else. John starts in eternity past and works his way down. All right, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called synoptic gospels. I don't know if you understand synoptic. Yeah, okay. All right, that, that optic is to see. Okay, synoptic sin means together. Okay, synoptic gospels in the sea together. Okay, John is not one of the synoptic gospels because he's somewhere else. <laughs> so the three of them are now going to give evidence and start. To, they're going to start a different place. While John showed Jesus Christ's heavenly origins, they're going to show Jesus Christ's earthly origins. The stuff that the Jews missed. They weren't looking for this and they missed it because they didn't want to know. They just didn't want to know because it's funny because, you know, you, uh, to me it's, it's almost like a paradox because they heard him. Remember at 12 years old, and we're going to see that incident as well. 12 years old, he, he amazed them. You would think, in, you know, in my normal logical thinking, all right, if I'm one of those little rabbis there, I would go find out this person's origins. There's something about this kid that's different. He's teaching us stuff we didn't know. He's only 12. There's got to be something about this kid. Find out where his origins are. Let's find out where he comes from. You just don't know who was there. And who went and checked something out. But I tell you, on the, on the whole, they just didn't want to know. They didn't want to know. So I, it's, it's, it's like that kid that's trying to put their hand up. And say, oh, miss, miss. And the teacher just doesn't want to know. <laughs> I reckon there were, there were Jews there that had an inkling this was the Messiah. And the hierarchy didn't want to know. Okay, let's uh, continue here. Sorry about that. Little side trail. Getting back to this, let's begin in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Alright, now, let me say this. Now, having established his heavenly origins, let me read this, please. When we get to the Gospel of Matthew... Oh, yeah, sorry, it should be the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew aims to establish again his earthly origins, specifically bloodline and genealogy, to further prove that Jesus Christ was in fact the Messiah they had been all waiting for. And so he writes in the very first verse in, of his Gospel in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, which is actually a summary of verses 2 through 16, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, by stating it this way, Matthew not only ties Jesus to the royal line of King David, but all the way back to the father of faith and all the Jews, Abraham. Alright, this is why, this is why it, it was written this way. So notice it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, two things that were important to them. He was a Jew of the Abrahamic line and the Davidic line as well. Okay, because you know, Jews are big on this stuff. All right. 
So that's why, you know, when you read stuff like this, you think, yeah, big deal. <laughs> okay? But it was a big deal. It was a big deal. In other words, Matthew is showing us that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the promised seed of both Abraham and King David. And since he is from King David's lineage, that makes him royalty and the rightful king of the Jews. That was one of the primary purposes for the Gospel of Matthew, to portray Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Meaning everything in Matthew's Gospel will, will point to this singular truth, that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen? Alright, now following a detailed listing of the Lord's genealogy in verses 2 through 16, for all the Jews that would have needed to know, this information, Matthew goes on to conclude in verses 16 and 17. We're not going to look at all the other verses, by the way. Okay, all right. He, he says, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now MacArthur writes, This is the only entry in the entire genealogy where the words begot is not used. The usual way in which this final entry is phrased underscores the fact that Jesus was not Joseph's literal offspring. The genealogy nonetheless establishes his claim to the throne of David as Joseph's legal heir. Notice, legal heir. Okay. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. From the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. There's significance of this. Here it is. As to the significance of the number 14. In his commentary on Matthew, Leon Morris explains, The number 14 is not accidental. It corresponds to the number of high priests... From Aaron to the establishment of Solomon's temple, the number of high priests from the establishment of the temple until Jedua, the high priest mentioned in scripture. And it is clear that there is a mystic significance attached to this number in both the Sadducean and Pharisaic traditions. Matthew would have been aware of this and may be producing an argument that would impress Jews. So that's why it was there. For some reason the Jews had 14 as a key thing. All right, and he was showing this, all the 14s. You know, for us it might be 7s and 3s. For them, 14 was a big deal. Okay, so everything has, has significance. So now, not only does Matthew deal with the genealogy of Jesus, but so does Luke in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, where he writes, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. This is what tells us when Jesus actually began his ministry, by the way, thanks to Luke. Okay, being as... Uh, was supposed the son of Joseph. Now, it's interesting, it says, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, Joseph which go, then goes back from generation to generation until we get to verse 31 where he says, the son of David, which then continues back through generations until we get to verse 34 where he says, the son of Abraham. I've just pulled these out, okay, so you don't have to wade through them. All right, and then four verses later, conclude, concluding in verse 38 uh, by saying, the son of God. Alright? So, watch this now. Watch the things that I've underlined. Alright? Notice how far back Luke takes it. Alright? He says, the son of David, the son of Abraham, but then he keeps going all the way back to the son of God. Interesting, isn't it? Alright? So, unlike Matthew who traced Christ's Christ genealogy back to Abraham, and John who traced it back to God, Luke does both. And shows us definitively that Jesus was not only the son of David and Abraham, but also the son of God. 
interesting. Amen? So we need to see all of that. These are, that's the reason why all the Gospels are there. They all had reasons. They all had a, a place. Alright? And each one shows us what they were trying to do. Amen. Okay. We have about 10 minutes left. Let's, <laughs> let's get into the birth of John and Jesus. Foretold. And let's move forward from there now. Now that the humanity specifically the genealogy and the deity of Jesus Christ has been established, we can now go on to look at the actual events leading up to both his birth and John the Baptist's birth. And this is when it starts getting interesting, okay? All right. <laughs> Mind you, it's been good up to now. Have you been enjoying it up to now? Yeah? Okay, there's a lot of stuff here. And like I said, as much as I want to get through things quickly, I don't want to leave anything out. Because Scripture is Scripture. Amen? And there's a reason for it all, and we need to see if you were a Jewish crowd, I would have gone through all the genealogies, but you're not. So you don't care. Okay. <laughs> okay. In his book, Jesus, the Greatest Life of All, have I got this quote in your manual? No? I'm sorry. All right. Just, just listen to this. All right. In his book, Jesus, the Greatest Life of All, Chuck Swindle sets the stage for us when he writes, without, a, without question... 6 BC was a lousy time to live in Judea. <laughs> Herod the Great had seized the throne of Israel through bloody intrigue and with political support from Rome. Then once in power, he, he guarded his stolen title, King of the Jews, so ruthlessly, he even put his own sons to death when any of them posed a significant political threat. Macrobius, a 5th century writer, recorded when Caesar Augustus heard that Herod, king of the Jews, had ordered boys in Syria under the age of two years to be put to death, and the king's sons was among those killed, he said, I'd rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Interesting, isn't it? Swindle continues, Herod though not really Jewish, pretended to be a good Jew by eliminating pork from his diet. But he indulged an insatiable appetite for murder. He built a magnificent temple for the God of Israel, an architectural wonder in its day, and gave its administration to one corrupt priest after another. Yeah, you know what? Just let's stop there for a minute. This is what the devil likes to do. He likes to build a temple and then give it to corrupt priests. I want you to think about this for a minute. You see, <clears throat> we don't think just because somebody builds some godly building that it's God. Can, can we stop for a minute and just think about this? Because one of the greatest ways that the enemy gets to God's people, remember he is a deceiver. Do you understand what deceiver means? He will, he will, he'll come as an angel of light. He'll say, isn't this structure magnificent? It's a God-honoring structure. But nothing in it honors God. Are you all here? So we have to be very careful. Some structures out there that have God on it, don't have God in it. Did you all get that? Okay? And we need to be very careful. And again, the reason why we're studying all of this because wherever we are going and however God wants to lead us, we need to make sure that we don't make certain mistakes along the way.
That whatever and whoever we become attached to and, and affiliate with, or I don't want to affiliate with anybody, tell the truth, just to let you know. But I, people want to affiliate with us. Okay, they, I, I, yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's, it's, and I have, I have kept that uh, you know, at, at bay because I'm not established yet. That's the truth. I need to know this stuff because, you know, they can get very technical on you. And unless we know exactly what we believe, and we can back it all up, and we know what to stay away from, and if we don't know something, there's a reason we don't know about it. Because we don't want to know about it. And it's going to cause strife and, and all kinds of division, so we're going to stay away from that as well. And we need to be strong enough to say stuff like that. At the beginning of this ministry, that was one of the things that we had the most difficulty with, was people's differing ideas of how this ministry should be run, what we should believe, and everything else. And you know what? <clears throat> because we've almost kind of gone down the Jesus road, in a sense. Started with a lot and came to a few. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. You know? <laughs> At one stage, John 6, verse 66, he, he gives them a hard saying, and they all get up and walk off. And all that's left is the twelve. And he says, you guys want to go too? <laughs> okay. Pete, bless his heart, he goes, oh, you're the only one with the words of life. We'll stick around a bit longer. That's a loose roast translation, but you get my drift. Okay, <laughs> alright? Sometimes, you know, no compromise means loss on a physical level, but not on a spiritual level. And it's very interesting, and I honestly feel like you know, we're going through that transition. We're about to go into the cross area, and then we're about to head off to glory. Hallelujah. Okay, and that's where we want to get to. We want to do it God's way. Amen? Go, brother, I don't want to be crucified. No, no, it's not like that. <laughs> okay. Jesus did all the crucifying that was needed. Alright, so let's continue here. He taxed Jews through the temple in keeping with the Old Testament law and then used the proceeds to break the first commandment, building cities and temples in honor of the emperor and his pantheon of Roman deities. It was a time of unprecedented economic and political advancement for the rich and horrific expression for everyone else. By the first century BC, a dark cloud had settled over Israel, blocking any ray of hope. Then, somewhere in the hill country of Judea, a woman named Elizabeth became pregnant with her first child. And we pick up the story in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And it says there, there was in the days of Herod, and we've heard this, okay, Christmas, every Christmas, all right? <clears throat> the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the division, are we, are we all there? Okay, we're in Luke chapter 1. Now, we won't be able to finish this today, because I'm about two minutes away from having to finish this session. But let me just read this, and we'll come back to this. We'll pick up here. It says, uh, again, there was in the days of Herod, also known as Herod the Great, descendant of Esau, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. Now, Maurice says that there were many priests, but only one temple. So they served on a roster. Okay, that's in First Chronicles 24. The priests were divided into 24 divisions. That was by King David, of which uh, that of Abijah was the eighth. All right, And Luke continues, his wife was of the daughter of Aaron, a priest's daughter. Notice, they're both priests. That's why the Jews were willing to accept John. 
Because they came from a priestly background. And they knew, because they were part of the temple. Alright? And again, her name was Elizabeth. And this is according to Leviticus 21.4. For a priest to have a wife of priestly stock was a special blessing for a priest. That's also the reason why the Pharisees and Sadducees accepted John the Baptist. Even though he was extremely blunt. And often even rude to them. Okay? <laughs> and they were both righteous before God, or fully pleasing to God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Now, Leon Morris says that this means, of course, that they serve God faithfully, not that they were sinless. Uh, we all got that? Okay, alright. But, verse 7, they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. Now, Morris says that having served God faithfully, it made their childless state hard for them to understand. For people believed that God would bless faithful servants by giving them children. And they were both well advanced in years, meaning that by now they were too old to have kids. We're going to have to stop there, and we'll pick it up next time. But this is the reason why it was such, such a difficult situation that these people faithfully served God, and she was barren. It didn't make sense to people. Do you understand? And you know the whispers would be, what are they doing wrong? Obviously they're doing something wrong. You know how people are. Amen? And so we'll, we'll pick up and talk about all of this next time. Okay. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed.